Shalom and welcome to Think Jewish, where we join together to explore divine keys for a better life. Our sages tell us that on the second day of creation, when God separated the upper waters to form heaven from the lower waters to form the oceans, the ministering angel of salt cried before God, all of creation exists so that it may be used in the service of God through a Jew using it in his performance of Torah mitzvot. However, now that the salt is not easily accessible to the human being, it feared that it would not be able to be part of any service to God. Thus, God made a covenant with salt that it would take part in every sacrifice that was brought in the holy temple. This covenant of God with the salt holds even today when our table is our altar and our bread is our sacrifice. And thus, whenever we eat bread, we must first dip the bread into salt. This is how our sages define the verse in our Torah portion of Vayikra, which states, and I quote the verse, and you shall salt every one of your meal offering sacrifices with salt, and you shall not omit the salt of your God's covenant from being placed upon your meal offering. You shall offer salt on all your sacrifices. So there you go in the verse. It calls this God's covenant the putting the salt on the sacrifice. In this lecture, we will explore the inner mystical meaning and lesson of God's covenant with salt and of this commandment to put salt on every sacrifice. Our sages define the power of salt as it in itself has no taste, but nevertheless it brings taste to meat. That's the way our sages define salt. So too, on a mystical level, in the Torah, there is the salt of the Torah and there is the flesh of the Torah, the meat. This is otherwise described in the Zohar as the soul of the Torah, which is the mystical teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, and as the body of the Torah, which includes all the revealed teachings of the commandments and the laws. Concerning the salt of the Torah, the soul, the mystical teachings, as much as we understand, nevertheless, presently, the human mind has no complete essence understanding of God. However, it is precisely this salt of the Torah that in itself we do not truly taste and grasp that gives the flesh of the Torah its true taste. Concerning a person's judgment in the heavenly court after his passing away, the sage Rava, name of a sage that lived in Babylon, he says, I want to quote to you how he says the heavenly court hearing of every person after he leaves this world takes place. When a person is brought into judgment, he is asked, did you conduct business faithfully? Did you set aside time to study Torah? 
Did you occupy yourself to be fruitful and multiply? Did you await with anticipation for the redemption of Mashiach? Did you involve yourself with wisdom? And did you extrapolate one understanding from another? Rava then concludes, and again I quote, And even so, if fear of God was his treasure, then yes. And if not, not. Rava goes on to give a metaphor. A metaphor of a man who said to another, Bring up a kur, a kur is a measurement, of wheat to the attic. He was asking the person to bring up the wheat to the attic for storage. And the person did as he was asked. The men then asked him, Did you mix into the wheat a kav? A kav is a small measurement of chumtin. Chumtin is a type of earth to keep the wheat from becoming infested with worms. So he asked the man, Okay, you brought up the wheat. Did you also mix into the wheat a small measurement of this special earth to keep the wheat from becoming infested with worms? And the other replied that he did not. To which the man then said, Better if you would not have brought up the wheat to the attic. The point of the metaphor that Rava is giving here is that if not for fear of God mixed into all of our Torah study and good deeds, then all has become spoiled. Thus, what we see from this teaching is that the true taste of Torah study is to find within it the flavor of feeling God and to fear God. Now I want to just clarify that the word fear here is not in any sense of the word a fear of a mean, vengeful, and punishing God. Rather, it is about a fear that comes from awe and a fear that makes real to us our not betraying the one most important relationship that we have in our life, our relationship with God. Thus, we are now referring to the soul of the Torah as the salt that must be placed upon the body of the Torah. Now we understand that what this means when we talk about putting the soul of the Torah as the salt upon the body of the Torah, which is the meat, it's so that it has the taste of Torah. The taste of Torah is a healthy fear of God. That's one introduction to tonight's, to, to, to this lecture. Another introduction necessary for our lecture comes from the book of Samuels in a conversation between David and his father-in-law, King Saul. I'm going to quote to you the verse. As this was King David telling King Saul after he snuck up on him and ripped the cloak while King Saul was sleeping, yet he didn't kill him. As says the proverb of the ancient one, from the wicked comes forth wickedness, and my hand shall not be upon you. Now the words, the proverb of the ancient one, literally, this is translated as the primordial metaphor. In the mystical teachings of Hasidus and Kabbalah, the primordial metaphor refers to the Torah. Why? The Torah is the supernal wisdom of God, which is the vessel, the metaphor, for the infinite light of God, blessed be He. Thus, while the Torah is God's wisdom and serves as a constitution for living a godly life, these are all 
but metaphors to what the Torah in its greatest sense is. It is a metaphor for the moral, which is the infinite light of God, blessed be He. Thus, everything in the Torah of the will, the wisdom, and the ways of God are in essence each but a metaphor of the primordial infinite light of God, blessed be He. So when we call the Torah the primordial metaphor, what we're truly saying is that the Torah, beyond all its intellect, beyond its, its constitution to human civilization, it is a metaphor for the primordial, primordial, infinite light of God, blessed be He. To understand what we will be exploring in this lecture, we will need to first define the difference, as it is seen in the world of Hasidus, between a metaphor and a riddle. There are two different things, and Hasidus takes the time to give the mystical understanding of the difference between the two. A metaphor on its own stands as an intellectual concept, even without it being transparent and seen only as a gateway to understanding the moral of the metaphor. So there's the metaphor, there's the moral of the metaphor, but the metaphor in itself is an intellectual concept. However, a riddle in its own has no meaning other than to be seen as what it is alluding to. For example, let's take a, a, a riddle that took place in the Torah. After Samson got married to Delilah, he, rep he presented a riddle to her people, the Philistines. I'll read the verses so we can see the riddle. Now Samson said to them, Let me ask you a riddle. If you can tell it to me within the seven days of feasting, meaning for his wedding, and you will guess it, then I will give you 30 linen sheets and 30 suits of clothing. But if you cannot tell it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen sheets and 30 suits of clothing. And they said to him, Ask your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, From the eater came out food, and out of the strong came out sweetness. But they could not tell the riddle for three days. I mean, parenthetically speaking, just that you know the rest of the story, they got Delilah to cry and put pressure on Samson that he should tell her she went and told him that the, her people, her people came back to Samson and Samson said, you went to my wife. And that's how it happened. But let's focus now on the riddle itself. There is absolutely no intellectual concept to this riddle on its own. If you just hear the riddle, let's go over it again. From the eater came out food and out of the strong came out sweetness. That in itself means nothing. All it was referring to in the story is that Samson was referring to the lion that he had slain with his beer hands in which the bees had built their hive and produced honey. That's all there is. The riddle stands not on its own. On the other hand, every metaphor in its own right is an intellectual concept void of only serving as an illustration to its moral. Thus, to us, in our lecture, the metaphor in one aspect serves as a thicker concealment than the riddle. 
in its hiding the moral. When studying the riddle, one is clear that what truly lies here is that which the riddle is alluding to. While when studying the metaphor, one can be completely blind to seeing the moral of the metaphor. So too it is with the Torah. Let's go back now to the two levels of the Torah, the soul and the body, the soul and the flesh. The soul of the Torah is clearly a riddle, for in itself it is clearly directing us only to see the infinite light, blessed be He. That's all that the soul of the Torah, Jewish mysticism, is all about. However, the body of the Torah is a metaphor, which within its own is seen as an amazing constitution to govern human civilization and in itself the Torah can be seen as the lifestyle of God's supernal wisdom with the ethics of God's supernal will. What we can be completely oblivious to when we study the body of the Torah is that the Torah is but a metaphor to the infinite light of God, blessed be He, with no other purpose at all. Thus, we now have a deeper appreciation of the soul of the Torah being the salt that brings us to the true taste of the meat of the Torah, not letting us be oblivious to the truest taste of the methodological meat of the Torah, that it be all about us finding the author of the Torah, rather than the Torah being a masterpiece in its own, blind to its author, who lies hidden within her. So now we're getting a more clear understanding of the process of the salt bringing out the taste of the meat. It is the mystical part of the Torah which truly we don't completely comprehend. We don't really have the taste and the grasp of it. But on the other hand, this, the soul of the Torah, helps us see through the metaphor of the body of the Torah not to see it only as a beautiful constitution to a godly life, wisdom, ethics, but to be able to see that in the Talmud, in the body of the Torah, we should remember that we have to find the author of the Torah, God, a relationship with God, a healthy fear of God. One last introduction to this lecture has to do with a law of the pur of Purim, the holiday which is usually around the week of our Torah portion of Vayikra. I'm going to quote to you the law. It's a very interesting law, which comes from the Talmud. Rabbah said, this is different, by the way, before I mentioned Rava. Rabba is different. Rabba said, it is the duty of a man to mellow himself with wine on Purim until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. What an interesting law. It talks about that in the festive meal of Purim, one has the obligation to reach a level of intoxication, mellow himself with wine that he should not be able to tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. Now, what is this? Some commentaries explain this law to mean that the numerology of the Hebrew letters of both these phrases each total to 502. So the Hebrew words Arur Haman, cursed be Haman, equal 502. The words to the phrase Baruch Mordechai, 
blessed be Mordechai, equal 502. Thus, being too mellow to do the numerology of calculations, numero do the numerological calculations of these two phrases is what the law is referring to. That's how some commentaries see this. However, for our lecture, let us explore what lie hidden in this law concerning the two phrases. Is there something that is alike between the two, or is there not? The law speaks about us not knowing the difference between the two. Ah, so there is a difference, and we are too mellow to recognize it. However, on the other hand, not knowing the difference between the two tells us that there is something deeply in common between the two. What is the similarity and what is the difference between these two phrases of cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai? Kabbalistically speaking, all of creation comes from the Hebrew letters of God's ten utterances in Genesis. You remember over there the verse keeps on saying, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let there... That concept of God said ten times, those are the ten utterances. The letters of those ten utterances, that is the source of creation. Thus, the, the numerological value of the phrase alludes to its source of existence within the ten utterances. A numerological connection versus the direct name of a creation being in the ten utterances just tells us of the contractions that take place between the original source of vitality as it exists within the direct ten utterances to the way it actually exists within the specific creation through only in numerological connection. So there's the words that say, and God said, let there be light. Light has a direct source, connection to its source, from the ten utterances. However, that which only has the, numer the numerological value of the word or, let there be light, that comes from the same source, but there's so many contractions between the source and the way it actually manifests itself in the specific creation that has that numerological value. However, be that as it may, be that as it may, when we find two creations that share a numerological value, we have uncovered two creations that share a source. This is why in Kabbalah, we find extrapolation upon the numerology of the Hebrew letters that make up the Hebrew name of a creation. Why do we do this in Kabbalah? To direct us to its spiritual source. For us, in our exploration here, this is telling us that cursed be Haman, which equals 502, and blessed be Mordechai, which equals 502, are each a phenomenon of the same spiritual source. What does this mean? Cursed be Haman speaks of the existence of evil, while blessed be Mordechai speaks of the existence of goodness and of the ultimately ultimate victory of goodness over evil. Blessed be Mordechai. How are they both one and the same? How can they both equal 502? How can they both be from the same source? And if they are one and the same, then what is the difference that the Talmud is telling us about, of which the depths of a Purim intoxication should make us oblivious to. The similarity of cursed be Haman and of blessed be Mordechai 
is that the sole purpose of their even being a cursed Haman in the first place is that through the existence of this evil we can truly reach the deeper goodness of blessed be Mordechai. So the only reason why cursed be Haman exists is so that we can through it be propelled into a deeper goodness of blessed be Mordechai. This is the only reason that God created evil and with it freedom of choice that through it we can reach the greatest heights of goodness. Now the ultimate height of goodness comes from us not only that we are not led astray by evil but even greater than this is that we create a transparency of the evil seeing clearly that the only purpose of why evil and temptation exists is for us to reach the goodness of Mordechai and holiness and then after we create a transparency we then transform this evil Haman into a good Mordechai. Thus what lie ahead of us to explore from these three introductions let's go over quickly the three introductions a the salt and the meat which refer to B the metaphor and the riddle including its representation of the soul of the Torah which is the riddle and the body of the Torah which is the metaphor which is also C the likeness and difference be between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai so what lies ahead of us to explore of all these three introductions are two aspects one to create a transparency through the meat the metaphor and the cursed be Haman and two to then transform them into divinity and into a blessed be Mordechai now how is this transparency and transformation done let's stop for a moment and ask a, a practical question on a more sober level how does one deal with the politically incorrect and even deeper than just politically incorrect I would say politically intolerable law of mandatory intoxication on Purim on a sober level how do we deal with this on a mystical level this law contains within it the true essence of the Purim holiday which is about the Jew finding within himself the deepest soul level through which he then connects to the deepest essence of God in who the difference between goodness and evil and the difference between the permissible and the prohibited are not innately mandatory I'm going to explain this what this means is that within the essence of God's existence there is nothing that can force something to be defined as despicable and forbidden or as admirable and obligatory to the author of the Torah and to the master of the will all equally exist with none being innately mandatory permissible obligatory or prohibited it is only God's supernal will that defines whether something is admirable or despicable whether it is good or bad guys let's be practical here for a moment is God forced to say lobster is not kosher gefilte fish is kosher a pig is not kosher a lamb is kosher 
in the essence of God, there is nothing that makes that mandatory. Quite the contrary. God's supernal will, which dictated that one is kosher and one is not kosher, is what makes one admirable or despicable, good or bad, permissible or prohibited. Thus, the soul of Purim, in experiencing the not knowing, is all about going beyond the mandatory definition of the knowing egotistical mind and instead to humbly enter into the depth of the essence of our soul which transcends beyond the finite state of knowing into the true infinite state of not knowing. This is where the power of similarity, transparency, and transformation of cursed Behemen into blessed be Mordechai takes place. Let me explain for a moment what is going on here. You see, the quote of the Talmud is that one must drink until he does not know the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. In the mystical teachings of Hasidus, we're looking that not knowing becomes not a verb but a noun. There is a level, the essence of our soul, in which there is the infinite not knowing in contrast to the lower level of the soul which is the intellect of the mind which is stuck within the finite knowing so when we're only connecting with God through the intellect of our mind we're in the state of knowing in which there is a very mandatory definition and separation between the evil of cursed be Haman and the blessing of blessed be Mordechai. However, on the deepest level, the essence of our soul, we were not stuck in the knowing of predefined definitions of good and bad. Rather, we exist in the essence which is connected to the essence of God where there is no predefined mandatory cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. So when the Talmud tells us on a mystical level, when the Talmud tells us we must reach the intoxication of not knowing, what it's really telling us is that we must enter beyond, leave go of the egocentric I know and experience a total submission into the essence of the not knowing, the infinite. Because when we do that, we connect with the essence of God in which truly there is a not knowing. Nothing is mandatorily predefined. Once we get into that not knowing, transforming one into another is easily done. Thus the soul of Purim in experiencing the not knowing is all about going beyond the mandatory definition of the knowing egotistical mind and instead to humbly enter into the depths of the essence of our soul which transcends beyond this finite state of knowing into the true infinite state of not knowing. 
this is where the power of similarity transparency and transformation of cursed be Haman into blessed be Mordechai takes place now to understand this on a practical level we will turn to the power of teshuva repentance returning which is the ultimate experience of true self-sacrifice I want to add on the word true living self-sacrifice because there's self-sacrifice as in dying for our religion but teshuva as we're soon going to explore repentance is a true living self-sacrifice however before we talk about teshuva being the living self-sacrifice let us first take a moment to understand what self-sacrifice did in the story of Purim our sages teach us that the emphasis of Haman's hatred to Mordechai is found in the fact that Mordechai was called in the Megillah it says Mordechai HaYehudi the Yehudi the Jewish people are called many names that each defines them as being of the Jewish nation and each of these different names refers to a different aspect of the Jewish people so you know we're called Bnei Yisrael we're called Bnei Yaakov we're called Ivri and then we're called Yehudi that's the name used for the Jewish people in the Megillah the name Yehudi defines the Jewish people as a people who denounce all deities and all forms of idolatry and of having faith in God and only in God that is the definition of the word Yehudi that's the aspect of the Jewish people which calls us Yehudi we won't accept any idolatry will only be faithful to God as God is one thus our sages say that were the Jewish people to have denounced their faith in God giving up being a Yehudi then Haman would have stopped his decree of annihilating the Jewish people our sages then conclude that the Purim miracle that God performed for the Jewish people was invoked by the Jewish people specifically because of the fact that for the entire year of the pending decree Haman through the lottery made the decree and that was a year before almost a year before it was to happen so for that entire year not even one Jew had a foreign thought to denounce his faith in God at all this absolute self-sacrifice the Jewish people held on to being Yehudim this self-sacrifice to have held on to their faith in God knowing that were they not to have remained Yehudim Haman would have let them live that was self-sacrifice was exactly the gateway of their entering into the not knowing infinite relationship with the essence of God where cursed be Haman becomes transparent to and becomes transformed into the greatest heights of blessed be Mordechai self-sacrifice this is what we're saying here self-sacrifice which is the physical and practical manifestation of not knowing going beyond the finite understanding of knowing the mind can never demand self-sacrifice will always say hey 
Better desecrate one Shabbat so you can live to keep many Shabbatot. You know, better denounce God once until Haman gets past his hangover so that then we can uh, pronounce our faith in God. So only not knowing can drive that self-sacrifice, the essence of our soul. It is the portal into the essence of the Jewish soul, which is the portal into the essence of God, which is the only existence in which there is no difference, no predefined difference, mandatory difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. Okay, now let us examine the power of teshuva, which is repentance, which is what we said, the practical implication of self-sacrifice, living self-sacrifice. Let's see why. Purposely committed sins are the lowest evil that can exist. You see, the mystical evil forces of the world, defined in Kabbalah as the other side or Klippa, the husk of concealment, are not the epitome of evil. Why not? For they are as God created them to be. God created them to be the other side. Non-kosher species and violent creatures of the wild are behaving in accordance to the nature that God created for them. So they're not being evil. However, when a person purposely commits a sin, he is violating the very nature that God created for him and is creating an evil that was not created by God. Thus, this behavior of purposely sinning creates a total corruption of the godly spark which is giving sustenance within the act. It is creating a total new unprecedented evil, an evil that wasn't created by God to be. This godly spark that has been transformed into total evil cannot be elevated by even the most righteous tzaddik. Why not? Tzaddik is so powerful. The reason for this is that even the greatest tzaddik lives within his limitations of knowing the set definitions and the set realities of the separation between good and evil. So therefore he cannot bridge that gap and transform the evil into goodness. The only one who can make that godly spark of evilness become transparent and transformed into goodness is the Baal Teshuvah the repenti, the returnee. The reason that the returnee can accomplish this impossible feat through his repentance is because the definition of repentance is the experience of self-sacrifice. It is defined as, and I quote, he tears himself away. The repenti, the baltishuva, the returnee, he turns him, he tears himself away from his present existence and from his present definition of being. When the returnee does this, he enters into the realm of not knowing, defying his present nature of knowing and being. The present nature of knowing and being for a sinner is that he is purposely sinning. That is the, who this individual is. This repentance of running away, tearing himself away from the knowing of who he presently is into the not knowing, this repentance thrusts him into the essence power of his own soul, 
which invokes its relationship with the not knowing essence of God. Now, when I say the not knowing essence of God, what I'm saying here is not knowing in the sense that there is no predefined knowing, predefined mandatory separation of evil and goodness in the essence of the master of the will and of the author of the Torah. You see, within the supernal will, there's good and evil. Within the Torah, there's good and evil. But within the master of the will and the author of the Torah, before God created the supernal will of pig is not kosher and lamb is kosher, before the Torah defines for us that lobster is not kosher and gefilte fish is kosher, in the master of the will, in the author of the Torah, there is no predefined knowing mandatory separation of what is evil and what is goodness. So within this not knowing essence of God, the transparency and the transformation of evil into goodness, of cursed into blessed, and of Haman into Mordechai is most naturally easy. Therefore, the sinner's purposely committed sins now become this very same returnees. Remember, the sinner tore himself, tore himself away from being a sinner. And through that infinite power of not knowing of his soul, he became a returnee. Therefore, the sinner's purposely committed sins now become this very same returnee's most beautiful merits in which this very contaminated godly spark now becomes the greatest shining spark of all. Now we can understand the difference and the similarities of cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai and why the similarity can only be experienced through the not knowing experience of intoxication. In quotes, intoxication. The difference between the two, even though cursed be Haman was created and exists only for the purpose of blessed be Mordechai, nevertheless, the difference between the two, in which Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed, that is the experience of the knowing tzaddik. For to him, the definitions of the supernal will is set and predefined, in which good and evil are clearly different and separated. However, to the not knowing, self-sacrifice, returnee, the Baal Teshuvah, the essence of God is the experience of reality. And there, in the essence of God, the not knowing experience, there is no predefined mandatory separation. Rather, there is only the oneness and the similarity of where evil is transparent and transformed into the deepest of unprecedented shining goodness. Wow. Let's take a moment here to reflect on what we just said. So that law of Purim becoming intoxicated to the point of not knowing the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai we now understand that this is the entire soul of what Purim is all about. 
It's about the Jew being able to get past his egocentric, I know what God wants. I know what's good. I know what's evil. And he knows it because he studies the Torah. He knows it because he has studied the supernal wisdom and the supernal will. But yet that is getting stuck. To be able to truly get past that, we need to be able to experience self-sacrifice, illogical self-sacrifice, to tear ourselves away from who we were and to be willing to go into the unknown of who we are to become, the not knowing, which in that realm of not knowing, cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai are two similar steps in one process to transform the evil into the goodness. This is what we talk about with the riddle and the metaphor. The riddle, being able to experience the not knowing. There is no understanding the riddle in itself. There's only figuring out the solution of the riddle. That not knowing of studying the beautiful mystical teachings of Hasidus, that is the power of transforming that when I study Talmud, it shouldn't be my egocentric understanding of God's will for the human being. Rather to be able to see that the entire Torah is but a metaphor for feeling, connecting with the primordial infinite light of God, blessed be He. In closing, we return to how we opened this lecture concerning God's covenant with the soul. Meat, the flesh of the animalistic soul, is mystically defined as the product of the blood of the heart, which the blood of the heart is mystically defined as the egocentric animalistic emotions, the heat, the passion. These egocentric animalistic emotions need to be transformed from one extreme to the other. They need to be transformed from the extreme of egocentric self-seeking to the other extreme of theocentric transparency. This happens, this transformation of our emotions happens through the very deepest and highest form of strength of holiness, Gvura Shebikdusha. The strict and powerful experience of the returnee tearing himself away, that Palteshuva, that strict and powerful experience he imposes upon himself of tearing himself away from who he previously was. The spiritual source of salt, according to Kabbalah, is Gvura Shebikdusha, strength of holiness, which gives the physical salt its power of extracting the blood from the meat and transforming the taste of the meat. The power of Gvura Shebikdusha the strength of holiness, to tear oneself away, is the ultimate human experience of living humility, selflessness, and self-sacrifice. It is the ultimate living expression of the essence of one's soul. 
this is what the intoxication of Purim is all about. It is to humbly let go of our finite and concrete human experience of knowing and to let ourselves be propelled into the infinite divine experience of not knowing and then to bring this infinite experience into the physical and practical transparency and transformation of self and of the universe around us. So, one should always remember that while the early bird gets the worm, the early worm gets eaten. Therefore, always live within your higher consciousness.